Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 185 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, your host, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. This week, we're talking unsung heroes from the world of automotive and motorsport, people who don't get the credit for their achievements and their contributions that they deserve. So hopefully, we're shining the spotlight onto a number of people this week who deserve more credit than they get. Uh, We also touch on the Formula One over the weekend, the Brazilian Grand Prix, and how to fix the sprint race format. Um, We talk about the World Endurance Championship. We had the final round in Bahrain over the weekend. And we also talk about a poll that we ran on Twitter. That's how we start. Um, Some quite interesting results, so stick around for that one. Before we get started, though, I'm just going to remind you all to subscribe to the podcast or follow the podcast. Whichever app you're using to listen to this, there'll be a little button that says subscribe or follow. Tap that. It helps us a lot and it means you won't miss an episode. So thank you for doing that and enjoy this week's podcast. Before we get stuck into Unsung Heroes, Andrew, the main theme of this week's podcast, there's a couple of other things we need to talk about. Um, First of all, on Friday before the weekend, we tweeted a poll, didn't we? Asking our followers... All else being equal, if they would rather drive a car with 250 horsepower weighing 750 kilograms, 500 horsepower weigh, weighing 1,250 kilograms, or 1,000 brake horsepower weighing 2,000 kilograms. Somebody helpfully worked out the power-to-weight ratios. We're talking 333 bhp per ton, 400 and 500 bhp per ton. Um, so we've got a, a very lightweight car with a good amount of power. We've got a heavier car with 500 horsepower and a very heavy car with a huge amount of power. What, what would you have guessed before we actually ran that poll? Well, I would have guessed what actually happened, but I wouldn't, what I wouldn't have guessed is the proportions. And that's the, thing, that's the, that's the startling thing, isn't it, from yeah. this poll? Um, so I would have guessed that... Um, I probably would have guessed that the 1250, 500... Um, 
horsepower category would have won it. Um, mm. And that the 750, 250 horsepower one would have been quite close. Uh, and I would have thought that the 2,000 kilogram, 1,000 horsepower one would have been you know, some distance behind. But nothing like the distance behind it's turned out to be. So 545 people voted. So it's a good sample size. <clears throat> 55% voted for the very light car with 250 horsepower. More than half for that one alone. 44% voted for the 500 horsepower car weighing 1250 kilograms. 1%, so five, five and a half people perhaps, 1,000 BHP and 2,000 kilograms. So that's quite clear, isn't it? That is quite clear. Amongst our Twitter followers, certainly, people are not interested in very heavy cars with enormous amounts of power. That's rather reassuring, really, isn't it? What one would you have gone for? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the poll said a weekend drive, didn't it? Um, in which case, you probably want a super lightweight car with 250 horsepower. If we're talking about a sports car to use year-round, maybe it's the middle one. I'd still go for... I'll tell you what, I mean, I think of cars that are kind of like close to those sorts of numbers. And if you think of 250 and 750, that's kind of like a really pokey, pretty lightweight Lotus Elise, isn't it? Whereas 500 and 1250, okay, it's not quite there because it's a bit less power and a bit less weight, but that's basically an F40. So for me, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd take the extra weight because you can get an absolutely unbelievable car. Um, it's also where, okay, yeah. you know, a bit more weight and a bit less power, but it's also, you know, that sort of sweet spot of Gen 2997 GT3 RS. It's all sort of around there, isn't it? So, yeah, for me, that's where it is. But I completely respect and understand people who go for the lighter ones. And I'm just really reassured that people just aren't interested in things with thousands of horsepower and thousands of kilos because they appreciate fundamentally that, you know, that lightweight is more important than big power. Yeah. But as a few people pointed out in response, it's all very well running a poll like this, but people don't seem to be buying those very lightweight cars. I mean, how many 750 kilogram cars can you buy? Um, but the, the point is, there doesn't seem to be a strong market for super lightweight sports cars. I think there is a very small market for them, but I think it's pretty consistent. And, you know, obviously, so much of this yeah. depends on the nature of the beast, the sort of people who choose to follow the kind of site that we are on social media. Um, and sadly, you know, we don't represent majority opinion out there. Um, you know, we, we, we represent a car, a hardcore enthusiast constituency of people who know, love and understand great driving cars. The I suppose the what, what's unsaid here is that the car industry, particularly at in certain categories, seems to be moving towards the 1,000 bhp and 2,000 kilogram realm, not least with electric vehicles. We know they weigh a lot, and we know that big power is basically one of the few tricks that those cars have. And the the level of interest among our followers in in those cars is pitiful. We, we, We still don't know, do we? We don't know how many... Lotus Avias or Pinaferina Batistas or Rimac Neveras have actually been sold. How many people have actually parted with millions of pounds for cars with four-figure power outputs? Well, okay, we know that that Bugatti have sold a lot of Chirons um, and haven't driven one. I, I do kind of understand that, but that's not what we're yeah. talking about. Oh, you, you know, that's got a, a very traditional multi-turbocharged, multi-cylinder internal combustion engine. In it. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we will see whether these cars continue um and whether that trend 
continues. But, you know, I think generally speaking, I think it would be a brave company CEO, some supercar manufacturer, and I said this before, who goes, really good news, chaps, our, our next car is going to have less power. <laughs> it's a tough sell, isn't it? And, and you can say, oh, yes, but it's got even, you know, the, the, the drop in weight is even greater. So it's got a better power to weight ratio. So it'll be, you know, it'll still accelerate quicker and it'll still, it'll go around corners faster and it'll stop better and it'll be more fun to drive. And you can say all this stuff and people just hear less power. Why would you want that? Anyway, shall we, um, shall we move on? <laughs> so World Endurance Championship, we had the finale. Uh, Bahrain, wasn't it? Over in Bahrain <clears throat> over the weekend. Um, and the interesting thing here is, so Toyota won every round of the World Endurance Championship this year, but Le Mans. What does that tell us? What does it tell us? Uh, it, tell us that, it tells us that um, Toyota produced the best car of the season, but it wasn't quite... Um, on its game at Le Mans. I think that's the least cynical view you can put on it. Um, no, uh, I, I, what I would like to do is I think I'd just like let people make their own minds off about this. Clearly, and this, is, you know, this, this isn't just my opinion, this is something that you know, manufacturers have stated to me since time immemorial. Any manufacturer in that competition would sacrifice every other race of the season if it meant they could win Le Mans. And on the centenary of Le Mans and the half centenary of Ferrari's last works outing at Le Mans, Ferrari won Le Mans. And no other race for the entire season. The other thing I will say, just for the avoidance of doubt, is that if anybody is smelling any kind of rat hair, I certainly don't think it's coming from Marinello. I think Marinello tried as hard as it can for the duration of the season, and I think they did an outstanding job at Le Mans. But were you to point out that the organising body, which said it wouldn't change the rules, then changed the rules just before Le Mans um, in a way that disadvantaged Toyota and favoured Ferrari, I don't think that's an unfair observation. I'd, I have to say, I find it difficult. I, I find it hard to really have faith that when I'm watching Le Mans, I'm watching a motor race. This sense of it, of manipulation, not by the manufacturers. Um, yeah, I guess we need to be careful about what we say. But it, it, it does strike me as being mm, a bit curious. It does. It does. Um, let's leave that one there before we get ourselves in trouble. So um, we're not going to get too hung up on F1 and the Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, although, should we just mention the final couple of laps between Perez and Alonso? Just fantastic. What is he, 42 or something now, Fernando Alonso? And still racing like a 21-year-old. It was really interesting. When you... When he was being interviewed on the podium, because usually he does something amazing and he's really quite cool and relaxed about it and goes, yeah, well, that was, you know, that was quite fun. He was really pumped up. For some reason, this one really mattered to him. I think he had a lot of fun out there. It must feel good as well because that Red Bull is comfortably the quickest car out there. And to get one up on one of those Red Bulls in a what is a slower car. So anyway, of course, Max Verstappen won the race. Um, that's his 52nd career win in F1. That means he is now clear of Alain Prost on 51, and he's one behind Sebastian Vettel on 53. Um, I think we can be confident that Max will at least match Seb this year. Maybe get past him if he wins both remaining races. Um, anyway, so, but what I want to briefly discuss is the sprint races. Um, it's a, it was a big topic of conversation over the weekend. And Karun's doing a piece Karun for us, Karun Chandok is writing a piece for us because he's got a view on sprint races and how to fix them um so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Karun has to say um because the point is they're here to stay 
And we know this because the TV audiences are stronger when there is um, a sprint shootout or a sprint race compared to a normal free practice session. And Formula One, if, if they're bringing in more viewers with this format, they're going to stick with it, aren't they? So, but what's clear is that something needs to change. Sprint races, the format, it needs to be fixed. Um, You're the man to do it, aren't you? You're the man who's going to fix the sprint race. Let me suggest this to you, right? And the issue, as I see it, is that the sprint is really just a mini Grand Prix. And there is a, it it can be a spoiler for the Grand Prix itself. It, it, It kind of lets you know what's likely to happen. For instance, Brazilian Grand Prix, the two Mercedes, they roasted their tires in the sprint. And so we were pretty confident that was going to happen in the race as well. And it did. So that's just an example of a sprint being a spoiler for the Grand Prix. But the the real issue is that they're just they're precisely the same formats. They're just shorter. So the sprint race is exactly the same. It's the grid is set by a qualifying session that is exactly the same. Both are just a bit shorter. And so it means you are likely to get the same outcome. As long as the conditions are the same, you're likely to get a, a very similar um, grid from both qualifying sessions. There'll be little differences, of course, but by and large, you're going to get basically the same result. So my suggestion is to leave everything the way it is. There are still championship points to be scored in the sprint itself. Those championship points still count towards the drivers and the constructors' championship. But you have to change the sprint shootout, the qualifying session. It should be a one-lap shootout, one car at a time, goes out, does its lap, comes in, Next car goes out, does its lap, comes in. And it should be in championship order. So whoever's at the top of the table goes first. And then you work your way down. There are a few reasons for this. It's a different spectacle to normal qualifying. It's, you know, it's no use just... The problem with the, the sprint shootout as it is, it's just a mini qualifying session. Three sessions and you lose the slowest cars from each one. And this would be a different spectacle. One car at a time, out you go. Qualifying used to be like that for a short period, didn't it? And and so at least it has a different feel and flavour, right? Second reason, typically more rubber will go down through that session, meaning that the cars running at the back will have more grip and so they might go faster. So there's a variable there. It mixes up, potentially mixes up the grid for the sprint. The final reason for doing it is that climatic conditions might change. You might go from a, a wet track to a dry, might go from dry to wet, or the temperature might drop or go up or whatever. And so that's another variable. It mixes up the grid. And what you want is cars out of position on the grid so that you've got quicker cars starting towards the back coming through so that there's something happening rather than the field just spreading, which is what happens with things the way they are. Thoughts? What I would like to see with the sprint is I would like to see, because at the moment it is two completely separate events held over the same weekend. So you have two qualifying sessions and then you, you know, one for each of the sprint and one for the race. What I would like, I would like to see it, you know, and and, and I think that what you want to do is shake it up so you don't get this period of just total domination by a single team you want to do something to help level the playing field so what i would do is i would have one qualifying session i quite like your idea my only concern about your idea 
is that it might just get less interesting because at the end of it, you're going to have Logan Sargent trying to beat Max Verstappen time and it's never going to happen. Um, but it, it's in, but, but I do like the idea of the one-lap shootout, whether it should be quickest first, slowest first, random, not sure. But I would like that to determine the quality for the sprint race um, and then for the results of the sprint race to be the qualifying positions for the main race on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, as I say, we, we know sprint races are here to stay, but it's quite clear that the format needs some fairly fundamental changes. Your idea is good. Maybe the sprint race should set the grid for the Grand Prix. Um, that's, it means it has real value then, doesn't it? And the drivers and teams are going to try really hard. Um, don't know. It'll be interesting to see what Formula One comes up with. Um, okay, so let's move it on then to the main topic this week. Unsung heroes. Um, now, I don't know what fields most of yours come from. Um, I've been particularly thinking about automotive and motorsport engineering. Um, and I think, that, you know, there are so many unsung heroes in those worlds, presumably because cars are designed and engineered by large teams. And it's, they tend to be led by one figurehead who often gets the credit. Um, and that's certainly yeah. the case here. And, you know, there'll be scores of engineers in the background, none of whom we've ever heard of, who perhaps actually did most of the work or all of the work. I want to talk then about the double diffuser in Formula One. That's the aerodynamic device pioneered by Braun GP in 2009, although Williams and Toyota had them as well. It was the thing that gave us that incredible F1 season in 2009. Braun GP winning six of the first seven races and eventually both championships, Jensen Button winning the title, the driver's title, having risen from the ashes of the Honda Works team only months previously. It's a great story, isn't it? So as the tale goes, Ross Braun bought the team from Honda for a quid after the Japanese manufacturer pulled out during the the economic crisis of that time. Um, And on the surface, it looks like he bought the team for a quid. Somehow they produced this mega car and they just dominated the first part of the year. And a lot of it, so there is a, a, a new documentary coming out very soon, fronted by Keanu Reeves. Button and Ross Braun are both involved. So it'd be fascinating to see how accurately it tells the story of the double diffuser. The other teams tried to have it banned after the first race in Australia. They, they were suggesting it was illegal. But in fact, they secretly all had their own double diffusers in the works by then, having seen how quick the Braun was in pre-season testing. And, uh, of course, the FIA declared it legal. So what isn't so well known is that the double diffuser was the idea of one Honda engineer, a Japanese aerodynamicist called Sanayuki Minagawa. Um, According to Nick Fry's book, Nick Fry was the CEO of Braun GP. The Japanese engineer read the rules in his second language and therefore interpreted them a bit differently. Had he not done so, it's likely that Button would never have won the F1 title and we would never have witnessed that most extraordinary season. Um, So, Minagawa-san, you are an unsung hero. Um, So, blimey, what a turn of events that was. Actually, as an aside, just looking looking it up this morning, Button won six of the first seven races. 
In the remaining 10, he was only on the podium twice and he didn't win another Grand Prix. Isn't that amazing? Because they got wise to it. Can I kick off? David Plasto. He was the managing director of Rolls-Royce and Bentley motor cars in the 1970s and the early 1980s. And when Bentley production had got down to 4% of everything that they produced, he was the person who suddenly thought, well, either we're just going to let this brand die because there's no point keeping it alive because nobody wants them, or we're going to try and do something with it. And he was the bloke who thought, what would happen if we just stuck a turbo on that engine? And if you look at the Bentley of today, the outrageously successful, profitable company that it is, it all stemmed from that decision. That decision created the Mulsanne Turbo, which led to the Turbo R, um, which led to, you know, by the time... This was in the early 1980s when, as I said, Bentley product, Bentleys were four, you know, for every 100 cars they made, 96 were Rolls Royces and 4% were Bentleys. By the time Volkswagen came in, it had almost completely turned around. Well over 90 of those cars would have been Bentleys and fewer than 10 would have been Rolls Royces. And it all stemmed from that decision and it was made by a boat called David Plasto. So big up to him. That's fantastic, isn't it? God, I think we're going to realise that the car industry is just full of these people who are not well known at all but were absolutely instrumental to yeah. these significant things happening. Let me offer Bela Berenyi. Um, he invented the crumple zone. So he's, he has therefore arguably saved more lives in car accidents than any other person. He, um, throughout his career, he concentrated on passive safety. So that's making cars safer in the event of a crash. Active safety is making them better able to avoid the crash in the first place. Um, he was... He worked at Mercedes-Benz for a long time, um, and he's got well over a thousand patents in the field. Um, but actually, his his patent for the crumple zone uh, came from before his time at Mercedes-Benz. Um, so his uh, sort of received wisdom at the time, accepted wisdom, wisdom at the time, was that a car should be very, very strong, and it shouldn't deform in the event of a crash, and that would therefore protect the occupants. But Berenyi knew that was wrong. He yeah. knew that you had to dissipate energy over time in the event of a crash. Um, effectively make that crash take longer. Make the car coming to a halt take longer. It's an oversimplification, really. But if you can double the amount of time it takes for a car to come to a stop, you halve the energy, the load that goes through the occupants. If you can make it take 10 times longer... Yes. You, re- you reduce it by 90%. So you can see how a crumple zone, an area of the car that deforms in event of a crash, can massively increase the occupant's um, chances of getting away unhurt or, frankly, alive. Um, and that was down to Bela Berenyi. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the, the truth is that actually a very strong car, a car that doesn't give when it hits something it just transfers the forces straight to the occupants um and you know a very strong car could be as dangerous as a very weak car in terms of um so yeah absolutely right hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, can we have sort of group people, so more than one person, who come together under a common theme? So I'm going to nominate Maurice Philippe, Peter Wright, and Martin Ogilvy. Because when we think of, I'm back okay. in form, we're, we're, we're back in Formula One now, um, and people think of the amazing lotuses that were made in the 60s and the 70s, um, cars mm. like the Lotus 49, the Lotus 72, Lotus 78, Lotus 79, these championship-winning, um, game-changing cars, and everybody thinks, oh, Colin Chapman, what a genius. Well, he certainly wasn't entirely responsible for these cars designs i think you could probably argue that he wasn't primarily responsible for these cars designs uh maurice philippe who is actually despite he's got the fact that he's got a fantastically french sounding name apparently he was a brit um and the lotus 49 and the lotus 72 you know the lotus 72 which was a competitive formula one car for six seasons the lotus 49 the car obviously which had the stress monocoque called with dfe in the back of it were his work and you know, the championships and the, you know, this was Lotus's most successful era. And likewise, the 78 and the 79, you know, the cars that pioneered ground effect. Um, yeah, sure, there were Lotuses and Chapman um, ran the company and he would have been completely um, involved in everything and certainly nothing would ever have been decided without his say so. But again, they were the work of Peter Wright and Martin Ogilvy. So, you know, I think it's so easy to go... It's exactly what you were saying about um, teams of people not getting the credit. I mean, one of the, I, was, I was basically... One of the things I thought about doing was nominating every single person who's ever worked for Adrian Newey. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Adrian is, a, is an absolute genius. Um, but, you know, certainly in the role that he is in today, um, he has a team of so many people Adrian would be the last person who would try to take credit for everything that has happened on his watch. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. And back then, the Lotus, you know, I just don't think it is right. What, however great a genius Chapman was, and he absolutely was, um, for him to get all the credit for all the stuff that happened in his company while he was alive. Yeah, well said. I suppose the likes of Chapman tend to get the credit because it's, it's a better story for the likes of us, isn't it? If we can create a hero out of one individual who's well known already, it just works. Um, I suppose if if they deserve some credit, it's for employing the right people, creating a culture of innovation, of experimentation, um, of allowing these people the freedom of expression that they need to come up with these ideas, perhaps. But yeah, fundamentally, 
We do need to shine a light on the individuals who do the work, who have the ideas, um, because they're the ones that really make the difference. And hopefully that's what we're doing in this episode of the podcast. Um, all right, well, let me give you another one of mine. Similar sort of theme to Bela Berenyi, safety. Um, Swedish chap called Nils Bolin, um, maybe better known than Berenyi, I don't know, but he invented the three-point seatbelt. Um, he was born in Sweden in 1920, and he was 39 when he filed his first patent, which was for the three-point seatbelt. He's estimated to have saved as many as two million lives with that invention. Two million lives. Before, um, he was at Volvo when he came up with that idea and filed the patent. Before that, he was an engineer at Saab's aircraft division. Um, And so he was therefore familiar with the four and five point harnesses that pilots would wear in those aircraft. Now, the the seatbelt wasn't anything new. Simple lap belts had been fitted in cars for a long time, but they were just massively ineffective. They, even in moderate crashes, the buckle could cause horrible abdominal injuries. And then there's nothing stopping your torso and your head flying forward and meeting whatever's in front of you. It could be the steering column, which is just a a metal spear, really. Um, And lots of people lost their lives that way or were horribly injured. Now, Bolin understood that the ideal would be a multi-point harness, similar to what race and rally drivers wear even now. But, I mean, we've, we've, probably, we've definitely both driven cars with harnesses. Uh, they're a pain, aren't they? They are a pain on the road in normal use. When you get in um, and you, you need to reach for a, something across the cabin or you need to even, you know, adjust the air conditioning temperature or reach for a ticket barrier or something, they're just a massive nuisance. And so they're not practical for everyday use. Bolin knew that. Um, And so he invented this three-point harness that gave you so much more protection than a simple lap belt, but allowed you some movement. Now, perhaps the most amazing thing about this whole story is that the patent belonged to Volvo. Rather than sit on it, guard it jealously, and market its cars on the basis of having the most, you know, the safest seatbelts going... They made the patent freely available to all car makers in an amazing act of selflessness. Um, and goodness me, a couple of million people were, were spared because of it. It's extraordinary. Some of the people on my list are actually reasonably well known, but I think that their impact has not been fully appreciated. Bertha Benz, Carl Benz's missus. So um, if you are one of our subscribers, and if you're not, may I venture, you should be, um, to our website, you can go on that and you can look at a story that Joe Fidalgo wrote for us a while back about Bertha. But she was the wife of the man who is more than anybody else, and it is, you know, it is a hotly contested area, but is, is generally regarded to be the bloke who invented the car. Um, but that's kind of all he did. And if Bertha didn't exist, I suspect that that particular event would have gone down as a tiny little footnote in, in, in history and somebody else would have all the credit because although he was a gifted engineer and he created a car, he didn't, once he got it, he had no idea what to do with it. 
he, he had no vision for what it could be, uh, what its capabilities might be. Um, whereas Bertha thought, blimey, um, we need to um, get the news out there. And so she nicked it. She literally nicked it one day. He came down to breakfast, found a note on the kitchen table, and she'd taken the kids and gone to see a relative, her mother, I think, um, who lived a, a reasonably distance. I can't remember how far it was, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hop, skip and a jump. It was dozens and dozens of miles. Um, and, and of course, you know, there weren't any petrol stations because there weren't any cars. So she had to go to, you know, stop at, um, at chemists in, um, in towns where you could buy petroleum spirit. Um, the car, funnily enough, went wrong a few times. Um, so she had to repair it. And had she not done that journey, had it not, um, become known and recognized and really put the name, then, you know, the whole history of the car, and certainly that company, which, you know, exists today as Mercedes Benz, could have been completely, completely different. It may not even have existed. So, um, yeah, the only, well, I shouldn't laugh. The, the, the only problem with Bertha is that for, for, I think for a really reasonably brief time in the 1930s, she did become quite an enthusiastic Nazi, but, um, Certainly back in the late 19th century, she was instrumental in creating, you know, the car and, you know, and, and, and getting word about it out there. Um, so I think that she is a really, really important figure in the history of the car. And you know, everybody goes on about Carl Benz and all that he achieved. But frankly, without her, it would probably almost certainly have been for nothing. Wow. So Bertha, unsung, maybe not hero, but certainly unsung. Um, okay, so on a similar sort of vein, yeah. apart from the whole Nazi thing, um, you've just reminded me of Hazel Chapman's contribution to Lotus, Colin Chapman's wife. Um, and that, <laughs> the point of this episode isn't to um, try and desecrate Colin Chapman's reputation at all. But nevertheless, Hazel Chapman is sometimes referred to as the co-founder of Lotus. Uh, it was, I believe it was her parents' garage that Colin used to, to, found, to first set up his company. I think she provided the loan that he first used and she was involved um, in one way or another uh, throughout their, well, certainly throughout his life. Um, so I think Hazel Chapman probably deserves a nod here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, she only died, I think, very recently. Um, and... Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, but, I mean, it's so true, isn't it? Throughout this industry, there are so many cases of men getting all the credit when actually it's the it's, it's the women in their lives. I mean, I, I almost um, nominated Roseanne Mansell, uh, Nigel's wife, um, because you know, as 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 I think many people know, Nigel did not was not built born with a silver spoon in his mouth. In it, he did it the hard way. Uh, and as he was going around the place, in, sleeping in the back of a van and everything else, then, you know, Razan was there with him all the time. Um, his constant support. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that without her, he would never have gone on to, you know, he just wouldn't have had the support structure around him to possibly have achieved all the things that he did. Another person, Susie Moss, Sterling's wife, um, sadly, both now departed. Um Susie was, you know, certainly in Sterling's later life, um, she was everything. She was his best friend, his wife, um, his confidant, his manager, his PR agent. I mean, she was, you know, Brand Moss owned 
uh, owed so much to Susie. Um, you could you could see them walking through a paddock, and people would be coming up to Sterling, and Susie would be going, "Oh, it's Fred from this particular company. Be nice to him, or you know, or, or whatever." And you know, every time you ever rang up, it was always it was always Susie who answered the telephone and made sure that Sterling got back to you. And Sterling, certainly in later life, you know, he was quite forgetful. Um, he could be quite irritable at times. And Susie was always there with a smile on her face to smooth it out. And you know, and that's how they learned. That's how they earned their living. Um, for all, I think they got married in 1980. Um, so for you know all those decades, um, Susie ran Sterling, and um, you know kept his name out there, kept Bran Moss alive and well. And you know, she, she was also on top of everything else. She was a completely brilliant individual, um, one of my very, very, very favourite people. And um, yeah, it's just terribly sad that well, both are gone now. Yeah, yeah, great suggestion though. Um, I reckon you've got a few more to rattle through, haven't you? Oh, I've got loads. I've got loads. Okay, so let me be quick. Brenda Verner. Ring a bell? No. Shouldn't do, but she was a Brit. She still no. is a Brit. I think she's still alive. She was Enzo Ferrari's secretary. Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and all I could do, I haven't met her. All I could tell you about Brenda Verner is she didn't put, put up with any nonsense from anyone. I think she was as forthright and direct. And I guess you'd have to survive being Enzo's secretary. You probably would have to be. Um, and so she was, you know, Enzo's, you know, um, right arm for quite a long time, certainly in the latter part of her life. Um, right, a few more. Wally Hassan. Um, he, in the 1920s, was Bentley's best mechanic. Um, he very nearly got killed when they tried to do a speed record in 1925. They tried to do average 100 miles an hour for 24 hours in a three-litre car. And the weather was appalling and one of the drivers refused to drive the car. The other came in and was absolutely exhausted, said he couldn't go on. There was no one out there to, you know, there were no other drivers. So Wally decided he's going to get on, get in this thing and uh, and have a go. And W.O. Bentley always said that he thought it was entirely to his credit that he managed an entire third of a lap before crashing it. Um, and they, <laughs> he basically threw it off the banking at Montlary um, barrel rolled it into a field and the general consensus on approaching the wreck was that the body in it was dead um, and they were only disabused of that notion when the corpse groaned and he spent months in hospital but he recovered but anyway that's not why I'm putting it forward uh, but if he hadn't survived that he would have never have worked with Bill Haynes to invent the Jaguar straight six engine in the late 1940s. And we all know what a, an extraordinary, the most versatile engine ever, you know, ever produced, you know, fit for powering hearses and Formula One car, well, the more winning cars. Um, he then, after Jaguar, um, he went to Coventry Climax and with Harry Mundy helped design the Coventry Climax V8 engine, which won all those Formula One world championships, then went back to Jaguar and did the V12 engine. So, I mean, the most astonishing legacy that he left, um, you know, from his early days at Bentley's to his, to, to his latter days at Jaguar and everything else in, in road cars, in Formula One cars, in sports cars, I mean, everything. Uh, I mean, a- absolutely incredible man. Um, who else? Uh, okay, a very, very famous person, which is why I was sort of thinking underrated, but it's, it's actually... Um, I'm nominating him for not the reason that people will think when they hear his name. Max Mosley. And everybody thinks about, you know, Formula Mm. One and his somewhat unorthodox private life. Um, 
But actually, as the president of the FIA, he did more than anybody else in recent years to campaign for road safety. Um, and the work that he did, and, yeah. you know, and you talk about people who saved millions of lives. I mean, he did too, because you know, all, all the stuff that he did with Euro NCAP and just pushing safety standards and forcing car manufacturers to comply and, and updating you know, systems around the world uh, and, and, in, and, in, and, and in racing too. The contribution Max Mosley made is would be very, very hard to overestimate. Um, and I think it is a great sadness that when people think of him, they think of the, the slightly curious um, side of his private life. And, 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 and if not that, then, you know, his, you know, his work in Formula One, it went so much further than that. And I don't think that many people necessarily um, know that. Um, Anthony Sheriff, he was the bloke, he was the managing director of McLaren Automotive yeah. when that started. You know, he was the man who had, you know, basically the original MP4-12C, but also the P1, and pretty much the bones of the sports series, so the 570S, um, were all, well, not down to him, because we said before on this podcast, you know, the teams of people get involved with him, but, but he was responsible for those cars. They were his vision. Um, and okay, we know the 12C launch didn't go very well, but the car itself was a revolution. Um, you know, you and I know, lucky for us, better than most, just what an extraordinary device a P1 is. And, you know, when the 570S first came out, it was so much better than anything you could point at it at the time. And that set, you know, and of course they've had many, many ups and downs, but it, as a company with a reputation for excellence in engineering and innovation, um, it, was all, it was all started by him. So, you know, hats off to Anthony Sheriff as well. Some brilliant nominations in there. Um... Yeah, particularly like Max Mosey, because as you say, he's, he's a well-known guy, he comes with a reputation, but he, um, his contribution to road safety was just extraordinary. Um, so I, I threw this out to <clears throat> the TI writers. I wanted to get some suggestions from um, some of our contributors, and there were some good ones. I'll just briefly rattle off a couple of them. So Herbert Linger, uh, he was a Porsche lifer. He was yeah. one, of, one of the first employees at Porsche. Um, and he became a test driver and a, and a racing driver at Porsche. He won his class at Le Mans five times. Um, he essentially invented, or certainly pivotal, in the invention of the safety car in motorsport. Um, he, he is the reason that Porsche's R&D facility is at Weissach. He was from the town of Weissach, and it was his suggestion to build it on the hillside there. Um, he did some of the driving in the McQueen film Le Mans. I think he drove the camera car, didn't he? Um, and he's he's actually got an IMDB yeah. page because of it. Um, so Herbert Linger, uh, Richard Parry Jones. I mean, maybe he's quite well known actually. His contribution to Ford ride and handling in the nineties is probably quite well known. But goodness me, he deserves a huge amount of credit for it. Very briefly, Archie Scott Brown, nineteen um, fifties racing driver, superb racing driver, born basically missing one hand and with his feet on backwards, um, had all sorts of surgical procedures to try and fix him as much as possible. Um, but he was, you know, he lived his life with severe dis- disabilities, but he was a phenomenal racing driver. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was capable of, you know, of, of scaring Sterling. You know, on, in, on his day, in a list of Jaguar, the brand for which he is 
most closely associated, you know, Archie's missile, as they called it, um, you know, someone like Goodwood, he was ferociously quick. Um, and the way that he fought disability, and, and not just the physical limitations of his disability, but the fact that um, motorsport organising bodies didn't even want him to have a competition licence, and the way that he fought the prejudice that came with being a driver with a disability at the, in that era, um, he is one of my all-time heroes. Um, he was an immensely good guy as well. Everybody adored him, and yeah, he got he got killed at Spa driving too fast in the rain in 1958, and it's uh, yeah, his story, his story came to an abrupt shut close. But great guy. Uh, there you go then, unsung heroes. I think we've hopefully shone a light on a few people who deserve it there. Um, that was good. So we've got a listener question coming up in a moment. Before we get onto that, as usual, I, I am just going to remind you all to hit the little follow button or the subscribe button on whatever app you're using. Just hit that little button um, to follow or subscribe to the podcast. It means you will never miss an episode, but it also helps us enormously. It helps us find a bigger audience. So please keep doing that. And thank you to those of you who have. So the listener question comes from Alex Shepley. Uh, Now, to summarise, last year he bought his first classic car, 1958 Mercedes 190SL. He loves it. He wants to do a trip with his dad, who's now 77 years old and finding longer journeys uncomfortable. And they were wondering about France. Now, I was all prepared to come on here and say, aha, I know what to do. Stick your car on the train that goes down to the south of France um, and you don't need to drive all the way down. You can fly down or you can get on a comfy train all the way down and then you can enjoy driving in the south of France because that's where most of the good stuff is. Um, however, that train service just doesn't operate anymore. It stopped running a few years ago by the looks of it, which is a pity. Um, so I was going to suggest Scotland. Now, you need to go quite a long way north um, to get to the really spectacular part of Scotland but if you get the timing right and you avoid the midges avoid the crowds and if you get lucky with the weather there is nowhere better yeah you're right I mean certainly the the west coast and the sky I mean if it's a 190 SL uh, which is a lovely car but it's very much a sort of um, elbow out cruising grand touring kind of sporting car it's not it's not a car which you need to be flinging at the horizon um, and I think, as you say, the west coast of Scotland, um, and we were on holiday there, I think it must have been just before COVID, and we were there and we were on Sky. I mean, Sky itself is, I mean, is, is utterly breathtaking. Um, the only place I've ever been in the world which can rival it for the sheer beauty of its scenery is the South Island of New Zealand. Um, and yeah, I think... Timing is is careful. It's crucial, as you say, for crowds and and the midges are 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 something of a pain. But if you go sort of either at the start of the season or at the end of the season, or or, or not during school holidays, I think you could have an amazing time up there. And it's perfect weather for that kind of car, and perfect road, perfect roads for the for that sort of car. So I think that's a I think that's a good call. There you go, Alex. Um, Scotland seems to be the answer. Have a look at that. So thank you for sending your question across, and please keep sending your listener questions across and we'll do another one next week. 